Welcome to Fireside Breakdowns. I'm Robin. And I'm John. Together, we research and break down complex and timely topics facing our society, and we bring our findings to you every week. Our promise to you is to bring you honest analysis backed by research, to skew our bias toward what can be factually supported, and to try to make it clear when we're giving our opinion versus speaking about actual research. Naturally, we're human. We have blind spots and biases, and they will show through. But our goal isn't to convince you to think any certain way. We want to give everyone a foundational understanding of these complicated topics so that together we can discuss and address them in a thoughtful and beneficial way. Because of the topics we cover, some of our episodes may get heavy, and some topics might seem divisive. But we believe that, even on these issues, common understanding can be found. And we hope those of you listening agree. We don't accept that the current state of society is the way it must be. Together, through discussion and on common ground, we can build a better world for ourselves and future generations. So we suggest getting comfortable and maybe having a good drink on hand as we work through this stuff. Welcome to our fireside. This week is a bit of a potpourri of topics, but we wanted to talk to you about a couple of very specific laws. One of them is HB 85, and the other one is HR 1. HR 1 we touched on very lightly last week, but we passed over going in depth because it currently looks like it won't be going anywhere anytime soon. However, it does aim to bring more equitable policies and practices to voting rights, and it isn't all the way dead, just mostly dead. HB 85, on the other hand, is kind of unique. Um, I'm sure relatively few of you outside of Missouri or my Facebook friends list have heard of this particular bill, but we're highlighting it here because we want to illustrate a few points about it. One is about the interaction between state and federal law, or as it's sometimes referred to, uh, states' rights. Uh, The other is to show how sometimes the intent of certain legislation loses sight of the realities in which the legislation operates. That'll make a little more sense once we actually get to talking about things and highlight what we mean. So let's do that. We'll start with HB 85. Now, fair warning, I have a pretty dim view of this particular piece of legislation. (laughs) So this section may come off as a bit salty, which may surprise some of you, because if you had the time to look it up already, you'll know that HB 85 is entitled the Second Amendment Preservation Act. What? John, are you against the Second Amendment? The amendment with the highest freedom unit score? The answer is no, I'm not. We'll get into the Second Amendment some other time. Uh, People... People have already tried the bad faith attack of being against this bill is the same as being anti-Second Amendment, communist, (laughs) on me. And honestly, it highlights the whole reason we started this podcast to begin with. Uh, Complicated conversations require nuance. So listen when I say I am not anti-Second Amendment, but I am 100% against the current form of Missouri's Second Amendment Preservation Act. But the title sounds so good. Why would protecting the Second Amendment be a bad thing? 
<laughs> Dear imaginary listener that Robin is voicing right now, we are so glad you asked. So, it, importantly, HB 85 is a state-level bill, if it wasn't clear, um, that Missouri put forward. And right off the bat, if you go and read through it, it's only four pages long. It's not super long. Mm-hmm. Um, but just reading through the thing reveals it was written by someone who thought they had solved a ridiculously complex problem with a stupidly simple solution. Aha! You are all stupid. Why hadn't you thought of this incredibly easy answer before? We don't like the federal government's current laws regarding gun ownership, so we're just going to decide they're not legal. Yeah, that's the thrust of the bill, by the way. We Missourians don't agree with the federal limitations on firearms and think that any limitations from the federal government are unconstitutional and therefore we won't follow them. As if you can just declare you aren't going to follow federal law. It's like a 1% secession. We only follow the laws we like, but the ones we don't like don't apply to us. Checkmate feds. And I'm not going to say that because I can't pull that off. G-G-E-Z. I am not a gamer. I am the opposite of a gamer. So if you want that one, you can roll with it. (laughs) Uh, You know, I mean, and the thing about this is, it's one thing... Like, you can't just say we're not going to obey federal law, right? That's not how this works. On the other hand, a bunch of states have said we're not going to obey federal law and we're going to legalize pot. Right. You know, I feel like the way that those things were gone about were totally different, though. Those states that legalized pot didn't say, well, the federal government's laws are illegal, Right. Right. They just ratified it within their own state. This is different in that it attempts to just say the federal, (laughs) you have no power here. Right. uh, To the federal government, which is not, (laughs) not how that works. So now that we've, now that we've rolled our eyes so hard, especially me, me, I have risked detaching my optic nerve. Um, Let's get to the good stuff. In summary. Missouri House Bill number 85, HB 85, declares basically every federal firearm law an infringement, quote unquote, of constitutional rights. It prohibits the enforcement of federal laws in Missouri, doesn't allow Missouri law enforcement to participate in enforcing federal laws, and doesn't allow any federal law enforcement officer or agent who enforced federal laws or supported enforcement of those laws to work as law enforcement in Missouri. Okay, for the record, <laughs> that was almost your boy here, because I enforced federal regulations banning the presence of firearms at certain political events. So I actually just narrowly missed out on a St. Louis stop one year. And uh, if I had gone to that, technically, I would have been the guy, you know, enforcing these federal laws and regulations in Missouri. So I if I had ever wanted to be a cop in Missouri, I wouldn't have. Luckily, I missed that. So if I ever find myself in the uh, questionably desirable circumstance of looking to be a cop in Missouri, uh, I could still apply. Well, I mean, yay. (laughs) Yay. Hey. Silver linings, you know? Right, silver linings. Thank God for tiny miracles. Right. Not that the state couldn't use a cop like you, but whatever. All right. 
There's only so much you can do from the inside, I've found. Right. Which is a shame. Now, lest anyone think that we are sprinkling too much salt here, or that we're even guilty of a biased reading of the law, here are the words of the bill itself. This is going to be real dry, y'all. It says, The following federal acts, laws, executive orders, administrative orders, rules, and regulations shall be considered infringements on the people's right to keep and bear arms as guaranteed by Amendment 2 of the Constitution of the United States and Article 1, Section 23 of the Constitution of Missouri. Any tax, levy, fee, or stamp imposed on firearms, firearm accessories, or ammunition not common to all other goods and services that might be reasonably expected to create a chilling effect on the purchase or ownership of those items by law-abiding citizens. Any registration or tracking of firearms, firearm accessories, or ammunition. Any registration or tracking of the ownership of firearms, firearm accessories, or ammunition. Any act forbidding the possession, ownership, use, or transfer of a firearm, firearm accessory, or ammunition by law-abiding citizens, and any act ordering the confiscation of firearms, firearm accessories, or ammunition from law-abiding citizens. Yeah, all of those things would be infringements on the people of Missouri's right to keep and bear arms under HB 85. We'll get into some of the implications right. of all of these laws in a little bit. Right. We just want to make sure that we tell you what exactly yeah. the law says. I'm, I'm trying to give you a salt-free rendering of the actual wording of the law so that you, dear listener, can determine for yourself. There was a little bit of salt in there just because they're so redundant. But okay, here we go. Now, with respect to what John was saying about law enforcement officers just a minute ago, it basically says... That it's the duty of the courts and law enforcement agencies of the state of Missouri to protect the rights of law-abiding citizens to keep and bear arms within the borders of the state and to protect those rights from the infringements defined in the bill. We kind of talked about those just you know, a second ago. It says that no person or entity shall have the authority to enforce or attempt to enforce any federal acts, laws, executive orders, administrative orders, rules, regulations, statutes, or ordinances infringing on the right to keep and bear arms as described in the bill. Any political subdivision or law enforcement agency that employs a law enforcement officer who acts knowingly to violate the provisions of the bill or otherwise knowingly deprives a citizen of Missouri of the rights or privileges ensured by Amendment 2 of the Constitution of the United States or Article 1, Section 23 of the Constitution of Missouri, while acting under the color of any state or federal law, shall be liable to the injured party and subject to a civil penalty of $50,000 per occurrence. And then any political subdivision or law enforcement agency that knowingly employs an individual actingly acting or who has previously acted as an official agent, employee, or deputy of the government of the United States to do all of those things that we just mentioned shall be subject to a civil penalty of $50,000 per employee. That's one of those sections that's way easier to parse when you're reading it. So definitely check out our show notes yeah. or the link in, uh, to, to get the actual uh, printed version of that because it'll make more sense because that's a, it's a lot of legalese. It is. We've, again, laid out now. 
because we want to show that we're not like making up the things that we're getting ready to talk about when we right. get to the implications of these laws. These, this is stuff that's actually in the law, which this law is in effect, by the way, this law passed, it was signed into effect. Yes. Um, so this is currently the uh, chaos that Missouri is operating under. So right off the bat, this law basically ensures that local police departments won't be able to assist federal agents on just a whole swath of law enforcement actions. Missouri police are literally not allowed to assist federal law enforcement. The same departments that receive federal grants and technical assistance from federal officers, they can't help anymore. If left in place, this law risks a significant amount of funding that is used by state law enforcement to, you know, fight crime, keep Missourians safe. Ironically, looks like Missouri is jumping the gun to defund the police. Uh, but worse than just, well, we might lose some federal money, HB 85 imposes liability on any Missouri agency that employs a law enforcement officer who participates or participated in any joint operation with federal law enforcement to enforce almost every federal firearms law. So if, if you ever worked with a, uh, the feds in any capacity to enforce any federal firearms law, which could literally be guys... I don't want to jump the gun, but it could be like it could be trying to find the owner of a gun at a crime scene. Something that simple. Suddenly you are a you have run afoul of this law because this law specifically prohibits registration or tracking of firearms or ammo or the ownership of firearms. So these federal and, and local partnerships are crucial. They're so important for force multiplication. Almost every federal case involves a local partnership at some point, simply because there just aren't enough feds to handle everything everywhere. <laughs> like, we have to have local assistance to handle so much things, so many things that we did. I mean, when I was in Secret Service, we had the locals out for every event because we needed, we needed people to secure perimeters. We needed to use their, uh, uh, their bomb dogs. We needed, well, we used our own a lot of the time, but we would get assistance from the locals. We needed that help in order to just do the basic job of securing a location. Aside from that, the entire premise of HB 85 is just wrong. Passage and enforcement of this law means that right now, if it stands unchallenged, that any state can just say, nah, that federal law just doesn't apply here, which is just absolute crazy talk. When did the states get the power of the line item veto? Trick question. It's never, never. The states just do not have the power to ignore federal law, which is why people who smoke pot in states where it is legal can still face federal charges should the government have a reason to prosecute them. 
The only thing that protects them, the only thing that protects you if you live in a state where pot is legal, the only thing that protects you from federal conviction, (laughs) or at least federal trial, is the cost-benefit analysis from the government's perspective. If, If you haven't Honestly, the federal government can find a way to make almost any case cross into federal jurisdiction, Um, but it's just not it's not worth it for the federal government to pursue all of these cases, except for in extreme, extreme circumstances. Most of the time, that juice just ain't worth the squeeze. Right. Like this, this whole axiom is defined by the supremacy clause, and that is Article 6, Paragraph 2 of the U.S. Constitution which reads, how did I draw the short straw for all the law reading this time? (laughs) You get to be the boring one this time. Okay. It reads, this constitution and the laws of the United States, which shall be made in pursuance thereof, and all treaties made or which shall be made under the authority of the United States, shall be the supreme law of the land. And the judges in every state shall be bound thereby... Anything in the Constitution or laws of any state to the contrary, notwithstanding. It's the last clause of the sentence that's important for our purpose. The Constitution and the law of the United States, the federal government, are the supreme law of the land. And any state law or constitution just doesn't matter. U.S. law preempts state laws when those state laws interfere with or are contrary to federal law. That's it. That's settled black and white in the Constitution, meaning that HB 85, as it's currently written, is literally unconstitutional. For an example, you can see Hillsborough County versus Automated Med Labs, Inc. This kicks in whenever state law actually conflicts with federal law, like when you literally cannot physically comply with both state and federal laws at the same time, or when state laws are an obstacle to Congress's pursuit of goals. Further, without providing any support, HB 85 just says, oh, well, taxing of firearms, tracing guns, registering guns, confiscating guns, or prohibiting guns to law-abiding citizens is an infringement on the Second Amendment. But you can't just say things are unconstitutional. <laughs> you have to prove it, you know, with, with facts and legal argument, like we just did. With the supremacy clause. And if, if you happen to be of the camp that says any limitations of a citizen to own a firearm are unconstitutional, we are sorry to report that that's not fact. That's opinion. And it's not one supported by the Supreme Court either. And I'm sure if you are in that camp... You've probably heard of this case and hate it very much, but it's D.C. v. Heller, 2008, wherein the court decided, like most rights, the right secured by the Second Amendment is not unlimited, and identified several regulations that were in line with the Second Amendment to include longstanding prohibitions on the possession of firearms by felons and the mentally ill, or laws forbidding the carrying of firearms in the sensitive places, such as schools and government buildings, or laws imposing conditions and qualifications on the commercial sale of arms 
which is things like you have to have a background check in certain states and for certain firearms. But HB 85 section 1.420, to be very specific, absolutely would declare these things which are settled case law as infringements on the Second Amendment. The Supremacy Clause is more than just a hierarchy of rules on paper. Practically, it applies in a million ways. But so here's an example. The way HB 85 is written, local law enforcement couldn't ask the ATF to run traces on a firearm that was recovered from a crime scene in Missouri. So you got drug runners with guns? Well, good luck figuring out how they got those guns. Terrorist shoots up a building in St. Louis. We can't find out who sold that gun last. We can't even begin to establish a chain of custody in the first place because HB 85 makes it illegal to require registration of guns. And while not everyone who uses a gun in a crime has registered that gun, the traces can and do help solve crimes every day. But this law makes solving those crimes so much harder. And we, we, I, when I wrote this, I listed out some pretty extreme examples about terrorists and and drug runners, but (laughs) think of the more mundane everyday crimes. Yeah. A man who shoots his wife, right? Uh, uh, Somebody who flies into a rage and is provoked into shooting their neighbors. Oftentimes people don't have these guns. They didn't purchase them with the intent of committing a crime. So they followed all of the rules when they got them which means they registered them, or at least there's a record of the sale. And then it just, quote unquote, it just happened, right? They committed a crime after that point. Anyway, forget about complying, by the way, with federal law, if you're a federal firearms licensee uh, and registering that gun or applying for the National Instant Criminal Background Check System, because the way this law reads That's illegal. And you have to do that to sell a gun to comply with federal law. But you can't. Illegal. In Missouri, anyway. Go to to Oklahoma if you want that illegal background check. (laughs) This bill talks a lot about law-abiding citizens, right? It's the phrase it uses. This is only only meant to protect, quote-unquote, law-abiding citizens. But again... This is why we're bringing it up, because a lot of things that sound good on paper turn out to have really crummy real world implications. It, this bill, HB 85, defines a law abiding citizen as a person not otherwise precluded under state law from possessing a firearm. So if Missouri's law doesn't say doesn't preclude you, doesn't prevent you from buying a firearm, then you can buy a firearm, even if federal law would prevent you from buying a firearm. Can can anybody predict the problem with that? Because there's a lot of them. I'll give you one. That means that domestic abusers can carry guns now in Missouri. 18 USC section 922G9 prohibits any person convicted in any court of a misdemeanor crime of domestic violence from carrying a firearm. But Missouri 
has no such law. Nothing could possibly go wrong with putting guns back in the hands of wife beaters, though. You know, I'm sure that will be fine. And remember that HB 85 also says no entity or person shall have the authority to enforce or attempt to enforce any federal acts, laws, executive orders, administrative orders, rules, regulations, statutes, or ordinances infringing on the right to keep and bear arms as described under Section 1.420. The way that's currently written, that would apply to federal officers working in Missouri, but that is in violation of the doctrine of intergovernmental immunity, which specifically prohibits states from regulating the federal government. If any state or local agency in Missouri employs someone that previously worked for the federal government or who worked with the federal government to enforce federal firearms laws or gave material aid and support to someone who did this, they're subject to a $50,000 liability. I mean, that's pretty clear discrimination to me, which again, makes this law invalid. Material aid and support is such a broad idea, too. And we actually use it a lot in my current uh, position, what I do now. How do you define what is material aid? What is, what is support? But, I mean, in this context, for example, anyone working on a joint federal-state task force that is called to testify before a grand jury or at a trial could be considered to have provided material aid and support to the efforts of another who enforces or attempts to enforce any of the infringements identified in section 1.420 of HB 85. So, so a, an officer could no longer testify in court about a criminal's activities if that particular case happened to revolve around uh, guns or the enforcement of gun laws, this, this is so dangerous because this immediately hinders the progress of, say, the prosecution of violent criminals. Because local police, not only would they not want to testify, they are not allowed to, to testify. They could be barred from testifying or be subject to a $50,000 fine. This law immediately, immediately, day it was signed, made it harder to serve justice. While true, cases don't generally turn on the testimony of a single witness, right? Not having that testimony could absolutely cost a case. Or it might be the difference between convicting somebody on murder two versus manslaughter. It's just... you. <laughs> HB 85 ignores the incredibly long history of legal precedent and the entire context of the conversation around firearms legislation to, to pull a Michael Scott. But instead of yelling, I declare bankruptcy, it is, it's, I declare a whole slew of laws and regulations null and void because I don't like them. It just doesn't work like that. HB 85 is just a, it's just a, dangerous package of crap. It clearly wasn't well thought out, and the implications of such sweeping laws weren't thought through, and, and not just Missouri, but the nation, all of us, are less safe if this continues, if it is allowed to stand in its current form, right? 
unless you think criminals aren't going to be attracted to a place where it's so easy to acquire a gun that can't be registered by law or to acquire ammunition that can't be registered by law or where it's illegal to run a background check on you to get a gun. And it's so hard for law enforcement to do anything about it now. And and I love shooting. Honestly, I enjoy it. I have Legitimately, I have too many guns. I think the Second Amendment is an important part of our Constitution, and I have no desire to see it removed. But this bill seems like a a knee-jerk reaction, a, a cynical calculation designed to be red meat to a very certain population to gin up political support because it's sticking it to a certain party and, and saying, see, we can do whatever we want. We got our guns. And it's not actually a considered piece of legislation. It is, in short, embarrassing. And Missouri has really been putting forward a lot of embarrassing bullshit lately. <laughs> and honestly... Holly. <laughs> right. Mm. We're looking at you, Josh Holly. Definitely. Honestly, though, John brought up this point in our discussions before, and I agree wholeheartedly. There's an excellent chance that this legislation is intended to be a piece of bait to force a Supreme Court argument. There's no way that this thing will be allowed to stand in its current form, but it could kick off a whole host of conversations on the Second Amendment. And with a conservative majority on the court, this could be just the impetus that they need. So, yeah, that's a pretty good summary. And if, despite our protestations, you still think these arguments are somehow not correct or legitimate, most of what we said above is paraphrasing the words of Brian Boynton, who is the acting assistant attorney general, in his letter to the Missouri attorney general. Also, just allow me to give you a piece of legal advice, even though I'm not a lawyer, so please don't sue me over this. Uh, I wouldn't recommend trying to do anything thinking HB 85 is going to protect you because the Department of Justice made it painfully clear, painfully clear that HB 85 conflicts with just so many federal firearms laws. And because of, well, because of, you know, the the Constitution, uh, all provisions of federal laws and their implementing regulations will continue to apply and the ATF, FBI, DEA, U.S. Marshals, U.S. Attorney's Office, etc., 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 will continue to perform their duties to enforce all federal firearms laws and regulations. So maybe don't poke that bear. Okay, so after that quick primer on the Supremacy Clause, now it's time for us to tackle the beast that is H.R. 1. This conversation actually fits in really well here because one of the driving arguments Republicans are making against the bill is that it oversteps the boundaries established by the Elections Clause or Article 1, Section 4, Clause 1 of the U.S. Constitution, um, which basically establishes what the federal government and the states get to do when it comes to elections. But before we can talk about whether that argument itself holds water, we have to talk about what's in the bill in the first place. Remember, we're trying to keep it high level here. This thing is 800 pages long. It's uh, so big. It's so big. <laughs> um, so we're, this is like super high level. And I, 
I'm going to acknowledge right off the bat that there are things in this bill we're not even mentioning, mostly because they're not very contentious. Uh, There are some things in this bill that people don't just they don't disagree on or they are not so substantive to the bill that they're a point of contention in its argument. Yeah. So the meat and potatoes, especially when it comes to contention, um, Number one, it outlines new and more modern national voter registration standards. So H.R. 1 includes a requirement for the chief election official in each state, who is usually the secretary of state, um, to establish an automatic voter registration system that uses information from government data to register residents to vote when they are eligible unless they specifically opt out. They would have to keep that information up to date using information from agencies like the DMV or agencies that receive payment from Social Security or the Affordable Care Act or other federal agencies like the Department of Veteran Affairs or the Department of Defense. As of February 2021, 19 states and Washington, D.C. were already using an AVR system. But the new provision would come with the caveat that the Election Assistance Commission should have access to monitor the state's election practices, and then they would be able to provide additional funds to assist with the implementation of that automatic voter registration system. Yeah, we didn't explicitly say AVR, automatic voter registration. That was on me. Yep. The bill would also provide for online voter registration and voter registration updates in all federal elections which, again, already accessible in 40 states and in Washington, D.C. Finally, the law would also guarantee access to same-day registration at either early voting locations or at regular precincts on Election Day, and it would establish voter privacy programs that allow victims of domestic or sexual violence to have their personal information kept confidential and require the state to notify residents of how and when their voter registration information is sold, which... I'm going to tell you right now, if you write your name, address, phone number, email down on something, chances are it's being sold. Oh, definitely. Definitely. Um, Number two, it significantly changes mail-in voting standards. So one of the most prominent and contested provisions of H.R. 1 is the mandate for no excuses vote by mail in every state. The bill requires that states send ballot applications to all eligible voters mandates that all ballots be mailed no less than five days before Election Day, prohibits states from requiring more ID than a signature for a mail-in ballot, allows voters to return their ballots to drop-off locations or to a polling place, and allows voters to designate somebody else to return their ballot, so like a family member, And it also requires states to establish tracking programs for mail-in ballots and provide information on whether or not an individual vote was counted, among many, many, many other things. Yeah. And this is like, this is the core of everything that um, many conservatives believe is wrong with vote by mail. Like, this is all of the hot button issues. Um, Sending ballots, sending ballot applications to all eligible voters, making sure that people can have other people return their ballots only requiring a signature for identification. These are all of the things that we've heard so much conversation around as threats to election security. And they're all packed into this one bill. 
The bill also aims to guarantee that individuals with disabilities have the right to use absentee voting procedures to cast their ballots by requiring states to establish processes for them to register to vote and to be able to cast their ballots by mail or electronically. Uh, After each general election, the Comptroller General of the United States would conduct an analysis and then report on the voting access for people with disabilities. It's uh, I do want to highlight that we talked about uh, mail in voting a while back now before the the 2020 election, actually, um, for people who haven't listened to it yet. And specifically in the context of, you know, is it fraudulent? You know, how how dangerous, what kind of threat does it present to our election system? And it, it, the very, very short story is there is not a significant amount of fraud. There's, n- there's never been enough fraud from mail-in voting or really any form of fraud that we can find to actually sway a national election like the, like for the presidency. Yeah. There's just, it's just not there. Yeah. So that's something of like a, a boogeyman to to scare people without actually checking the data. Right. Um, and we, we talk last in last week's episode, if you haven't listened to that yet, we do talk about the fact that you have to weigh the cost between uh, setting these regulations that might restrict access for eligible voters and the evidence of actual fraud. Are we solving a problem that needs to be solved? Um, Another thing that H.R. 1 does is provide for early voting. Each state would be required to offer at least 15 days of early voting for all federal elections. And those days of early voting would need to have at least 10 hours of access per day and include times before 9 a.m. and after 5 p.m. Why? Why? Why would they need those times, Robin? Right. So, you know, maybe if you're an adult and you work a job and you have to be at work from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. and you need mm. to access the early voting options. Or or also you work a non-traditional shift, you work overnights or you work lates and you want to vote on your way home from your overnight shift or on your way in to your nine o'clock shift. There's all sorts of great reasons to make sure that our polling locations are open for more than the standard nine to five workday. Yeah. Because uh, it's just so limiting. Moving on. There's so many things to talk about. So many. Uh, it also, HR1 also restores federal voting rights to citizens with past felony convictions who have completed their incarceration. So right now, whenever you are a convicted felon, you are stripped of your ability to vote. Now, in some states, you are automatically... Uh, your 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 right to the franchise is automatically restored after you have served your sentence. In some states, you can apply after a certain period of time to regain your right to vote. Um, and then in most states, once it's gone, it's gone. So this would serve to rectify this, which I think I understand the impetus behind not allowing felons to vote because it's, you know, don't do a crime if you can't handle the punishment. But at the same time, uh, usually prison is the punishment. After you have gone to prison, the idea, especially in restorative justice, is that your punishment has concluded 
and anything beyond that point is is in excess to the actual punishment. You should be a full member of society again and able to rejoin and exercise your rights, barring some very, very specific uh, crimes that for reasons related to the crime strip you of some rights there is no crime that i can think of even voter fraud that would that should prevent you from ever voting again right because even if you have committed voter fraud you probably one haven't been able to do it at a level that changed anything and two are probably not going to be able to do it again yeah. So, I don't know. I could see an argument on both sides on that one, honestly, but I would I feel like it, you'd be hard-pressed to to make an argument with data to show that those people shouldn't be allowed to vote. It would have to be a very emotional appeal. Right. Like to scare people. Like if we let these people vote again, they're going to to I don't know, give the election to mega asteroid of death or something. I they're know, going just, to fraud again. Yeah, yeah. It, that's and it seems again it would it wouldn't be a good faith argument. Agreed. Uh, HR one also limits how states can challenge or purge their voter rolls. The bill would place clear limits on states' ability to use information from cross-check programs to purge their voter rolls. These programs are shared databases that collect voter registration records from multiple states in order to try to catch duplicate registrations. It's not a bad concept overall, but when they aren't designed well, they can erroneously purge eligible voters from the rolls. One study estimated that the use of these systems could wrongly disqualify 300 eligible voters for every double vote that it prevents. The bill would also prevent states from removing anyone from the rolls without first obtaining some specific collateral information and would not allow these cross-check purges to happen within six months of an election. Hmm. It also extends uh, prohibitions on a practice called voter caging. Mm -hmm. And the way this works is they get all these voters and they put them in these bamboo cages and they ship them out to sea so they can... No, that's not it. That's, no, that's exactly um, how it works. Oh. Uh, they... In reality, unsolicited mail is sent to registered voters. And then any mail that is returned undelivered is used used to purge or challenge voter registrations. It's an undesirable process at best. And HR1 would place restrictions on uh, how close to an election those challenges can be made. It also require information to be checked with additional criteria like social security numbers before purging and establish penalties for challenging a voter's eligibility when the challenger knows the voter is actually eligible um i can just think of so many nightmare scenarios where the mail gets sent to an old unupdated address my address on my on my driver's license is from like 2018 like a long long time ago but because of the way because of the way the pandemic hit and my ability to update my driver's license it just i just haven't been able to go yet mm -hmm. and so if if I if my address in the system is still that old address and a piece of mail was sent out to my old address, it's not going to be delivered because I'm not there. Right. You know. Well, if the current occupant does the right thing and says no, no longer at this address, 
puts it back in the mailbox. So like I could be disqualified from voting just because I moved. Right. Well, and then there's like, so then there's people like my mom who, when she gets junk mail or mail that she doesn't want to get, writes not at this address and puts it back in the mailbox. Like there's all kinds of things. I had never considered doing that before. It's so smart. I don't know if it works. Um, I don't, I don't know if it works, but uh, it's like hitting unsubscribe in your junk email folder on everything. Right. Like it might work. It might not. But at the same time, the idea that something as simple as returned mail or undelivered mail would be used to determine voter eligibility. It just yeah. seems a little sketch to me. Oh, great idea. There's so many reasons mail could be returned. Yeah. So many, so reasons. many reasons. Oh, okay. So another thing that HR one does is try to take on gerrymandering. That's a real big, big task. We did a whole episode on it because it's thing. that so we started off this yeah. whole, whole thing. Cause it's yep. that complicated. So high level summary what this bill would do is require each state to use independent commissions to approve new con- congressional districts. These commissions would be made up of five Republicans, five Democrats, and five independents who are not lawmakers. And it would require bipartisan approval for these new maps. And it would also give the public an opportunity to object to districts that they feel are poorly drawn, whether they're new or old. That sounds so fair. I know. It'll never make it. Will it will never work. <laughs> never. Uh, the good news is that, as we discussed last week, the, the John, Lewis, John Lewis Voting Rights Advancement Act could do something to help with gerrymandering moving forward. Because if, if that act passes, then any changes to a district would have to go through a Department of Justice approval process. Right. So there's still some hope to take on gerrymandering. This would just enhance that and allow for old districts that aren't being redrawn to be challenged as well and then force those to be redrawn if they were found to be uh, very, very poorly drawn and definitely not trying to force a district to go to one particular side or the other. Right. Definitely. <clears throat> So the next thing HR1 does, it provides significant funding opportunities for election-related work like audits and voter system updates, basically making sure that the infrastructure that keeps our election system running is is funded. So we don't have as many, oh no, we don't have enough worker problems, or oh no, we can't have uh, an audit of this result because we just can't fund it right now issues. Like we can always fund the things that need to be funded to make sure our elections are fair and equitable. Exactly. It also over explains something. <laughs> it's okay. It happens. It's what we do here. Yep. It also outlines new provisions and funding for election security work and requires that as of November 2024, all voting machines used for federal elections are manufactured in the United States. Again, an effort to make sure that our elections are fair and free from influence. Which you'd think that the people who were very worried about the election machines being made in what, Argentina or Venezuela Venezuela. or something, this Venezuela, this last cycle would be all over that particular requirement. Not only does it create U.S. jobs, it makes sure that our machines are made in the United States. 
that seems like a win, win, win to me. Right. But of course, there's probably something objectionable about that to somebody. Yeah. That one probably got green highlighter, whereas a lot of these other ones got pink highlighter. Red. Oh, yeah. 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 Just black Sharpie is what yeah. they got. Just Redacted. Scribble it out. Redacted. Um, it also, HR1 also makes some big changes to campaign finance law itself. The bill would require super PACs which are their political action committees, which are basically just big-ass organizations full of money and influential people who fund and organize campaigns. Um, And this has to do with the way donations are allowed from a single individual to any single... Suffice it to say, super PACs are not subject to the same donation laws as you and I are. Anyway... It would require these super PACs and other groups that accept quote-unquote dark money, which is money donated to campaigns to influence voters, where the donor and the source of the funding are not disclosed. Um, It would require those entities to publicly disclose those donors. So it just provides transparency so you know where money is coming from and can see where it's going and what the intent would be. So like, oh, gee, the Heritage Foundation is funding this super right-wing... politician of course they are Mm -hmm. that makes sense it would also require facebook and twitter to publicly report the amount of money spent on political ads which we would have actually been on that report if this passes even though we never like ran an explicitly political ad so many of our ads on facebook get blocked because they're about political ads issues yeah it got really frustrating so we actually stopped running ads for a while i wonder if we can if we can actually run one we can we can things have loosened up a lot oh thank god anyway we digress it would also establish a match for small dollar donations from public funding sources paid for by a fee levied on corporations or banks paying civil or criminal penalties. So if you do something bad, the fine that you are that is being assessed against you will then be used to uh, provide funding for um, <sighs> campaigns, I guess. Yeah, and there, inside the bill, there are a lot of really cool ideas to prop up this idea of small dollar donations to uh, political campaigns. Um, there's all kinds of matches and grants and and cool things like that in there that I thought were a really interesting approach to allowing people to feel more enfranchised and more a part of the election process. Right. I think that is in part response to uh, the I think it's Act Blue, which is a um, I, I don't know if it's a super PAC or what exactly it is, but. Uh, it is like the primary democratic fundraising vehicle. It's just a website. You can go and you can donate money and say it, this is going to this pop, uh, this politician or this one. And it's meant to be a, a way for grassroots donors to actually donate instead of having to find out each individual candidate. Anyway, the very existence existence of that uh, caused a lot of dust up on the right side, especially right wing media. Um, accusing it of, of all sorts of impropriety of and, and and I don't know uh, conspiracies really yeah um, and so they were they were for a while they were actually explicitly attacking it um, so I'm sure that these provisions to support small dollar donations and to strengthen them and to give them more protections 
uh, is in part respond a response to that. Yes, and there are, there are also some um, provisions in here that are clearly directly targeted at some things that happened in previous election cycles. So one of those, as example, is that it would require campaigns and political committees to report contacts with foreign governments that include offers of unlawful campaign contributions or collaboration to influence U.S. elections. And it would work to close loopholes that allow foreign nationals to contribute to election funding through companies that they own or control, or it would uh, limit their ability to purchase election advertisements like those that were purchased by the Kremlin in 2016. What? Right. And then there are a host of other smaller efforts at election donation transparency. And one more thing that HR1 does is overhaul the Federal Election Commission to increase its effectiveness and decrease the polarization that is on the commission. It gets really into detail about how they would um, restructure that and make sure that it works more effectively. But as it relates to voting rights, that doesn't really change a whole lot for the average voter. For us. Yeah. There's a lot of smaller things that we'll just rattle through really quick. We don't actually have to discuss them. Uh, some of this we've touched on in other episodes, but um, it sets new ethics rules for public servants. So HR1, it would require the establishment of the first ever code of ethics for Supreme Court justices. Um, can't imagine. Can't imagine what that's in response to. Um, and create more oversight on lobbyists and foreign agents. It would expand the definition of a lobbyist to require them to register and follow the regulations that they are now subject to. Um, and also expands conflict of interest guidelines for the president and other officials and appointees. I'm sure part of it says, hey, you can't own the golf course that we then host the G7 at because you're paying yourself if you do that. Something like Something that. Something like, just like maybe in slightly more cagey terms. Most importantly, when it comes to ethics rules, in my opinion, at least, is that it would prevent members of Congress from using taxpayer money to settle sexual harassment or discrimination lawsuits. There was quite a kerfuffle about this not too long ago when it basically came out that Congress people who are sued or um, brought to court over sexual harassment or discrimination can actually use taxpayer money to mm. settle those cases. Um, so mm. <laughs> uh, gross, but also... HR1 would put an end to that. Mm -mm. Great. Speaking of very targeted, uh, it would require presidential candidates to disclose their tax returns. Hmm. Hmm. Can't imagine. Yeah. Can't uh -huh. imagine why. Weird. Huh. What a strange provision. Um, it, another kind of strange provision in here, it would expand public access to congressional reports, all the reports that these different committees and organizations make to Congress. It would expand the public's opportunity to read and uh, assess those. And then uh, finally, for at least for our overview of this bill of important things, it would affirm the authority of Congress to make a new state for Washington, D.C., we discussed this in our D.C. statehood episode, how there's actually not like a law that would allow a, allow the District of Columbia to like give land away to become a state. So this would basically uh, give Congress the authority to make that happen. Right. Now that we finished that wrap up, 
and it was long. We're, we're not going to dive too deeply into the arguments for and against all of these different provisions. We've covered many of them in the past, and a lot of them last week as we discussed the state laws that seem to be, well, diametrically opposed to the provisions of H.R. 1. But we do want to take a minute to talk about whether or not Republicans' assertion that it violates the Elections Clause of the Constitution is solid or not. The truth is, it's a pretty gray area, which is why there's an argument over it. The Constitution gives Congress the right to establish laws governing the time, place, and manner of federal elections. That can be interpreted in a host of different ways, depending on who is bringing constitutional challenges to the Supreme Court and who is sitting on the court itself. And remember, the ultimate judge of what is and isn't constitutional in the United States is the Supreme Court. According to Wendy Wisner, who is the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice, each of the provisions in H.R. 1 are designed to be, and are, constitutional under existing precedents of the court. But the current court, or a future court, could always change course and determine that these laws are not in line with the Constitution. I mean, that is, if this thing ever comes back from the pit of despair. You see what we did there, guys? Really? You see the, the book ending, book Princess ending. Bride was, references? Never. I'm real proud of yeah, that. It's pretty good. You guys are probably in awe of our incredible writing prowess. Yeah. Anyway, Robin, if they're in awe, what can they do to reach oh, us? Oh, they could, they could tell us they're in awe in so many different ways. So many ways. Yeah, they could. Um, they could find us on social media and leave us a comment. We are on Facebook, Instagram, and for now, Twitter. Um, <laughs> So active. So active. Uh, yeah, you can find us by, just by searching Fireside Breakdowns. You'll find us. Um, if you'd like to send us a long and thought out response about how amazing our Princess Bride references are or any of the other subtle references that we make that you have picked up on, you can do that at firesidebreakdowns at gmail.com. And should you be so inclined and ready to do so before we launch a variety of different incentives at you. If you desperately needed to leave us a review and tell us how much you value our pop culture knowledge, you could do that on your favorite platforms. We would appreciate it. We would love it. We would thank you publicly and maybe even read your review on the air. Stay tuned on that. I think next week, next week is when we're going to do it. I think next week is when we're going to do it. Yeah. This week's technically our one year, um, July 5th, but we're, we're, we got to finalize some stuff. So it's going to be one year in one week. Um, so for some good news on July 1st, 2021, that would be the date we're recording this, uh, Thursday for all you people in the future, last Thursday, uh, speaker Nancy Pelosi announced her appointments to a bipartisan select committee to examine and report on the facts and causes leading to the attacks on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. The House voted 222 to 190 to form the select committee, which means that two Republicans crossed the party line to support the committee, which does officially mean that this was created on a bipartisan basis. Yay. Though, yeah. Perhaps not as strongly as Americans would hope, and certainly not with as much bipartisan support as the May vote for an independent committee got, but um, it's something. Now, this 
definitely isn't an ideal situation. Unfortunately, select committees have something of a reputation for becoming a partisan circus <coughs> Benghazi, <coughs> uh, but at least there will be some investigation. And the way this particular committee is supposed to be formed, it should actually be fairly bipartisan. So there will be 13 total members, with Speaker Pelosi able to pick eight of them straight out, and the remaining five will be in consultation with Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, although he's already given some pretty strong indications that he's not going to play along at all, <laughs> um, threatening to remove committee assignments from anybody who agrees to help. Uh, at least it's an attempt. Um, Pelosi has already appointed a Republican uh, in Liz Cheney, meaning the balance is likely to be seven Democrats and six Republicans, regardless of how the politics finally shake out. Hopefully, this will shake loose some factual information. Ideally, it would spur on another vote for an independent committee, like the 9-11 Commission, which would allow Americans to have more faith in the findings of this committee. If nothing else, maybe it will put pressure on the people who were uh, dragging their feet on confirming a, uh, a committee, uh, an independent committee. We shall see. Regardless, I think it is good news because it means at least something is being done. Yes. And something is better than a bunch of arguing and nothing. Always. Always. On that note, we will be back in... One week, one week from today, with some more great news and probably less ranting about Missouri-specific bills. <laughs> but they highlight a good point. Remember the takeaways. Until that point, thank you very much for listening, and take care of each other. Yeah.